Hey everybody, welcome to Artist Soapbox. Artist Soapbox is a podcast featuring triangle area artists talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am your host, Tamara Kassane. Hey friends, I'm excited to bring you this conversation with Dylan Bailey, a Raleigh-based theater artist and arts educator. In this episode, Dylan talks about theater for youth and young audiences as performer, teacher, and creator in all kinds of spaces, both virtual and in person. Our conversation has a little bit of everything, which makes me laugh to think about. (laughs) You'll hear about charcuterie, a train, The Wizard of Oz, Cinderella, Peter Rabbit, Atlantis, and about a half dozen North Carolina theater companies, plus more. Dylan Bailey holds a BFA in Theater for Youth from East Carolina University. In 2020, he was recognized as an Outstanding Arts Educator by Chatham Life & Style. He currently serves as a Women's Theater Festival team member, is a member of Pure Life Theater's core leadership, and works as Seed Art Chair's Managing Director. In his free time, he writes plays for young audiences— Dylan has acted with Seed Art Chair, Burning Coal Theater, Pittsburgh Youth Theater, Theater in the Park, and Summer Storybook Theater. As a teaching artist, he has worked with Say, NCT, Raleigh Little Theater, Applause Carry Youth Theater, TAP, The Art Center, Seed Art Chair, Burning Coal Theater, and Star Bright Little Players. Enjoy the episode. Dylan, hello. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hello. I am so excited to talk with you. And I thought we would start sort of chronologically. I mean, what is time now in this pandemic? But let's go back. Recently in 2019, you received your BFA in theater for youth. And I want to know why you pursued that degree. So in, in May of 2019, I graduated with a degree in theater for youth from East Carolina University. And I originally went to school thinking that college was going to be a charcuterie board of educational opportunities where I could take a class in opera and then one one day and then take a class in um, stage combat and anything that piqued my interest. And to an extent, I made college that experience. I did take a lot of classes that were outside of my major. But initially, I started thinking I wanted to study theater arts education get my BFA in theater arts education. So I narrowed it down to schools in North Carolina because I'm North Carolina born and raised that had that program. So I narrowed it down. There may be a few others in state, but I narrowed it down to East Carolina, um, UNC Greensboro, and UNC Charlotte, and did the senior and high school thing where I toured those campuses and really got stuck in the mud on, I wasn't sure if East Carolina or UNC Greensboro was the right campus for me. I also was really interested in still keeping acting as a, as a, as a main part of my life, um, as a big part of my life. And so I was interested in ECU's professional acting program. When I got to East Carolina, which was the school that I decided upon, I very quickly was cast in a production of The Little Prince and fell in love. That was within just the first few weeks of being there. I really fell in love with performing for young audiences. So I ended up 
falling into the, I did get a lot of theater education training. I learned pretty late in my BFA training that I felt that being full-time in the public schools was not calling to me and filling me up with joy in the same way as kind of working, bopping around and being a, a mm-hmm. artist and, and a working actor was. And so I did drop that major um, in my last year. It was a late decision. And I did end up graduating with a degree in theater for youth. So performance for youth, working as a teaching artist, writing for youth, all of that was covered in that program. Yeah, I, I, I made the decision to study, to pursue education initially because of uh, my wonderful high school theater teacher, um, Rome Butner. And I really thought that I would only work with high school students because that was the majority of my theater education experience. I, I hadn't gone to an elementary school with a theater program or, and the middle school theater program, it wasn't as defined. And there were a few shows here and there, but there wasn't a full-fledged program. So I didn't associate theater with young, young people, the, the, the kiddos. And then when I got to college and studied under Patch Clark, who's still there, uh, and she's the program director for the Theater Arts Education BFA and also the Theater for Youth BFA, she introduced me to working with kiddos as well. And, and so that's where I really fell in love with theater for young audiences and this, this world. I'm so glad that you brought this up because I'm going to be showing my ignorance right now. I did not understand there was a difference. So what I'm hearing you say is that theater arts education is essentially to set graduate up to teach in a school, probably high school setting, but theater for youth kind of expands the range of kids that you would work with and can be outside of that school setting. Is that right? It, it is. So the, the the people that were studying theater for youth oftentimes felt really passionately about education, but also it, it was a performance BFA as well. So there was the performative element of performing in front of um, a live children audience made up of youth and families, you know, and within TYA, there's, you know, just like any theater company, there are all the different jobs that need to exist in a, in a working theater company. So a lot of us designed TYA shows or directed youth shows um, and, and also learned how to work as a freelance teaching artists, which teaching artistry is a, just a little, there is a slight difference. You're still working as a teacher. And I saw, I can't remember where I saw this definition recently, but the definition between a theater teacher and a teaching artist, the really the distinguishing factor is teaching artists are supposed to provide like a, it's not supposed to take the place of theater teachers. I think every school should have a theater teacher and that be there, the heart of a theater program. And I hope that one day that will be the reality for every school, whether it's a public school, private school, charter school, whatever. And then teaching artists are a wonderful like supplemental experience where they come in and do a residency or a workshop. Maybe they're a guest director. Uh, in a school, um, or they're working in community theaters or studios, and they provide an additional experience that um, heightens the child's theater education. You spoke a little bit about how your interest was piqued with The Little Prince, but can you tell me a little bit more about what it is about theater for youth that makes you feel like this is your, your calling? Well, with theater in general, and I've always gravitated more to theater, I'm interested in all art forms and performance in general. I've gone back and forth between saying, you know, I'm, I'm just a performer or I'm just a theater artist. 
I don't like labels and boxes too terribly much. So I've, I've always tried to shy away from saying, I'm just an actor or I'm just, a, you know, there's a train. Um, uh, <laughs> it's not a theater without a train. It's not a theater without a train. I tell every, <laughs> every theater I know has a train somewhere near it. That's so funny. So I think that there's this um, even more of a shared experience uh, or a shared experience can be felt between the audience and the actors. You know, we're, we're taught audience etiquette as we go through, uh, as the audience, as an audience goes through their audience education. And we're taught to be very polite. We must come in and we must wear a, a button-down shirt or a, a mm-hmm. nice dress. And, and we must clap at the appropriate times and things like that. We're, we're kind of conditioned to be an audience in a certain way. And kids come in and they are so uh, honest and they are so real. And if something hits them in a visceral way, they're, they're cackling. But mm-hmm. if they are not entertained, you hear the the seats bouncing, the bouncing in the seats, and that is that they've got the wiggles, and you just hit the forty five minute mark, and that playwright wrote a talky scene, and um and 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 it has lost the attention of the audience. So they're really honest, and their presence is felt the entire time. And every now and then you'll hear the chaperone or the um the teacher that has brought them or parent that has brought them to the theater, you'll hear the, the shh, or like a, every now and then like a, uh, an assertive kind of snap, um, right. um, trying to bring their, their child's focus back in. I really appreciate that element of it because I think that's the main, I think the audience is the main difference. Now we're living in a world where there is, there is Zoom theater or a virtual theater there's television, there's also film, and there's, you know, the traditional theater um, that's got, been around for thousands of years. And I think the, the relationship between the performer and the audience is the thing that sets theater apart from the others. I really appreciate performing for children because of that instant feedback and their ability to, especially for the youngest ones, they drop right in. Like you don't need to convince them to go on the journey with you. They're like there. They're ready to be entertained. They're ready to say the things if you do like a call and response. And there's no kind of convincing. Now we're going to pretend to do blah, blah, blah. It's like that is their wheelhouse. They know how to do pretend imagination. And I feel like that kind of leeches out of us as we grow up into being adults sitting in seats. You know, obviously if you buy a ticket to go see a play, you're kind of on board already, but I feel like there's still a level of convincing that needs to happen for a lot of adult audience members that I just don't see with kids and I think it's it's a great lesson if they're bored because I've written for children as well. If they're bored, that's not about them. Like <laughs> the play needs to be reconfigured. And that can be uncomfortable medicine to take, but it's some really clear feedback. (laughs) Absolutely. From a performance standpoint, and just like the, what is required of a performer forming for young audiences. And it's different, you know, like I, I, if TYA is a genre, if theater for young audiences is a genre within theater, there are like sub genres within that genre. So there's theater for the very young which is like preschool age and or daycare aged students can be as young as like two years old. Then there's theater for, for youth. 
probably anywhere between like, I would say kindergarten through fifth grade, maybe middle school, depending on the loose definition. And then there's theater for young adults. You know, sometimes that's a, that's a loose definition too, but high school, sometimes middle school, depending on the way the theater presents it. I've, I've seen some theaters even listed as early college. Everyone's definition of adulthood is different. When are we grown up? If you're Peter Pan, never. So I, I think within those subgenres, there's different um, things that are required because we require different complexity of storytelling. We require different conventions to be included to, to hold our attention in different seasons of our life. And we also require different ways of communication. So like early on in life, we require more, we need clearer visual communication because we have a different relationship with language in the first season of our life. Being really clear in body language and physical characterization is so important. And when we're performing for young young people, you know, you have to make sure that you're really projecting your voice because every word is a clue. And so it's important that they hear every word really clearly and the articulation needs to be crisp. You know, if there are words that they, they're not understanding or they're not familiar with yet, that they're using as much of their context clues as possible to, to grasp the story. And they also have the visual cues of strong physical choices and, and physical storytelling. So I, I like that part of performing for youth. Patch, um, my mentor in, at ECU, always said, you have to have energy shooting up the spine. So from the, the bottoms of your feet all the way through the top of your head, you have to have energy shooting up the spine. And, and I like that expectation, no matter what the character is, even if they're a lazy character, if you're playing mm-hmm. like a sloth on stage, somehow you have to be so defined in your choices playing a sloth that they still have that basic energy about them. It sounds like age, the age of the audience members, when we're talking about children, it's really important in the ways that you described and kind of the relationship between the performers and the audience member. It feels different when you're working with children. Are there other considerations that you can think of when we're when we are performing or creating for youth? I think more and more participatory theater is so vitally important for young audiences. And in general, I spent a a summer performing and studying in Poland and the Czech Republic. I think it was in the summer of 2018. That's where I really became interested in um, an audience's relationship with language. Because for me as an audience member, Oftentimes, I did not know what the actors were saying on stage um, Mm -hmm. when I would see a show. Every now and then I would see a show with subtitles, but it became really important that they were, their physical storytelling was clear. So I was doing um, an independent study in that and how they integrated physical storytelling or dance or puppetry to help tell the story. So one of the things that I noticed, one of the conventions that was really popular in the Czech Republic and Mm -hmm. Poland it was so often it was participatory. I saw a production of The Wizard of Oz in this beautiful historic theater that had been three balconies and had been, I think it was built in either the late 1600s or early 1700s. This production of The Wizard of Oz, they had stripped away all of the sort of Americana that we associate with like the Judy Garland movie. And they had their own music They that they had original music in this production. And they found ways constantly of bringing the audience into the story. So when the 
the lion and I can't remember if the scarecrow falls asleep, but I know Dorothy and the lion fall asleep in the field of poppies. They had this, I think the tin man threw a rope into the audience and the children had to pull this rope and they were Mm -hmm. like laying on a bed of flowers and it dragged. And I'm sure the, the scare, the tin man was providing support because these were tiny children, but they (laughs) all worked together to pull the lion and Dorothy out of the field of poppies so that they could wake up. That kind of stuff, I think, is becoming really important because entertainment is so immediately at our fingertips in the year of 2021. So we can watch, anyone can watch. I mean, uh, our young people are, I say this like I'm ancient, but Mm -hmm. our, our young folks, our children, they have the knowledge and understanding to look on YouTube and find Peppa Pig or Doc McStuffins or whatever show they want to watch in that moment. They can turn off their brain if that's what they're searching for, because they can rewatch their favorite episode as many times as they want. But when they're in a theater, I think it's helpful if they're called on to participate and actively participate in the entertainment that they are um, consuming. And that's what sets apart theater from all of this other entertainment. They have a relationship with the entertainment they're consuming, and they have agency, and they actively participate. So I think that's that's another element of children's theater that is really important right now and also important for grown-ups. I think there's a way to do it. I know some grown-ups, if they go into a theater and they hear that audience participation is a part of the show, they, some, some people might, oh gosh, anything but that. Um, it's all about the execution. I totally agree because I'm one of those people who I don't like to be... <laughs> participatory. So grumpy. Except when I go with my kids, I'm so into it. I love in those moments because it feels like it's something that we're doing together. It feels completely different, has a very different flavor. And I totally agree. It's all about the execution and how it is, how it's handled. Obviously, I am extremely biased, as are you. But I want to hear even more about what theater can offer to children not about making them superstars, but what are some of the other skills, competencies? How would you describe that? And it's a, it's a great question because I think we do theater education and theater experiences for, for young people. I think we do that really well in the triangle area, uh, especially in like a studio space. There are so many studios in this community and so many theater companies that are providing classes and workshops for young people. And again, it's back to the, I don't know why I learned the word charcuterie and I'm going to use it every chance I get. If you want to be a Broadway star, then there's a studio that you should go to. When I think of that, I think, I think North Carolina theater is, is, is providing such amazing like technique experiences. And that's awesome. And I think that if you want an experience, I said I'm against labels, and now I'm categorizing all these theaters. And then if you want like a really fantastic like arts integration experience, that is teaching core curriculum, uh, whether it's literacy or history or STEAM, you know, STEM with the arts. Uh, Seed Art Share does that really well. If you are looking for a performance experience that, and I teach for every single one of these 
So I'm completely biased. We need to ask for all of these studios to sponsor Artist Soapbox. Uh, uh, (laughs) If you want a wonderful process-based experience about the process of creating, I think um, companies like Applause View Theater and Raleigh Little Theater, a lot of studios in the area do that really well. And I feel confident saying that all of the companies in the triangle that I have worked with are also addressing this. There's a social skills component involved. And I've been talking with a lot of teaching artist friends. I I am someone who is teaching both in person and, and quite a bit on Zoom. And of course, always masked and, and following you know stringent CDC protocols and following the lead of doctors. But I I think a lot of teaching artists that I've spoken to have agreed that the role of the teaching artist right now more than ever is not as much about arts enrichment and developing, you know, beautiful technique or even necessarily creating, but I really think it's about providing social outlet and social skills experiences because we're living in this time of disconnect. It's been, it's been a really hard year for everybody, but it's been a really hard year for our kids. And facilitating uh, an experience where they can socialize and uh, work with others. Theater is all about working with others, even if you're doing a one-person show. What I love about your answer is that it's an excellent illustration that theater is for everyone. Depending on what you want, you can find something to meet that particular need or focus area. And I am 100% on board for the theater experience. If it is led well and with support, we can become highly functioning members of our community because of the skills that we learn in a theater space. Again, if it's not a, not a toxic location, the way in which we work together to make a thing in front of people, I think there are very few opportunities for kids to do that in quite the same way. And from an audience perspective, for kids to see adults up there doing the things that you need to do when you perform for youth, I think that is another way for them to see how adults can function in the world that they don't often get to see. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And and I would go so far as to say that it's been a difficult 14 months, but it was difficult before the 14 months started. I think that empathy and the empathy that must exist for theater uh, for storytelling to take place, uh, for good storytelling to take place, and the empathy that must exist to properly explore the human condition, which is what theater is all about. I think that 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 became really important in 2016, um, mm-hmm. and I, I think that that was important, and I think it's still incredibly important because trying to figure out what somebody else is going through or justifying behavior and choices and exploring objectives and central conflict in in stories. Um, All of that can exist in theater. And so from that, uh, one of the programs that I'm involved with is called SPARK. SPARK is a a part of North Carolina Theater's um, in-school residency program, and they explore conflict resolution through the use of theater exercises and activities. So I think all of that is incredibly important. In 2016, the piece that I was writing, and I didn't connect it consciously to the, the times in which we were living, but I know as a writer, you, you know, Tamara, that we are influenced by the 
you know, probably we are, if we're paying attention, we're influenced by the, the times in which we're living and, and that mm. impacts our writing. I wrote a play called Cinderella's from around the world. And it was all about kindness in the face of adversity, which I think is the theme of the Cinderella story more than, oh, she has a small foot, put on a shoe. Um, uh, <laughs> um, I'm a princess. You know, it was every culture has a Cinderella story. And this was a research project. Um, I had a, I had a small research grant while I was in school to produce this play and um, fund some research about Cinderella stories and how every culture, every region of the, the globe where people live has a Cinderella story that is native to it. And I honed in on seven stories that were similar, but all had kindness in the face of adversity. And they were these princesses, these princess characters were surviving such challenges and such adversity. Um, Some of them were being reincarnated like three times Mm. before they got to that happy ending that they needed. And I thought, you know, we, we toured in Eastern North Carolina and our final dress rehearsal was on the election night of 2016. You know, we talked about as a cast how important it was going to be to perform these stories about other cultures and holding them up and valuing them and respecting them and acknowledging that there's so much more that unites us than divides us. And I think that that's what I think that's what theater's all about too, taking in new stories, stories that you've never experienced before, and oftentimes looking through the lens of another human and acknowledging, oh, that is not my lived experience. And that's amazing. What was the response to the Cinderella play that you're talking about? What kind of feedback did you get? We performed in Little Washington, Washington, North Carolina. And it's a wonderful historic theater over there called the Turnage Theater. We performed in that space and we had we had a tiara making workshop that proceeded and all of these sweet little children, you know, strutted in on the red carpet, like they were royalty. And it was super cool because that was another part of it was that princesses can look a million different ways. And that's cool. You know, we, we're all living in Western culture in little Washington, North Carolina, and we, we have seen princesses represented in a, in a specific way in media. And all of the children that were going in there expected to see Disney Cinderella on stage uh, because mm-hmm. that's what they were familiar with. But they were really enthralled by it and they could recognize, you know, I, I was also, I had a little survey sheet asking some research questions, trying to figure out, you know, when they entered the space, what did they think Cinderella looked like versus when they left the space, what do they think a, a Cinderella looks like or Asking questions like that, because I was really interested in the, uh, the feedback, like 95% of people said Cinderella has to be blonde. She's got to have mm-hmm. on a blue dress. The blue dress was very important. Every now and then, people didn't say this as much, but every now and then on the slips of paper that I collected, it said fair skin. And when they left, um, they had seen the Egyptian Cinderella, which was the first Cinderella story in history. And they think it was based off of some historic events. Uh, the story of, I believe it's pronounced Rhodopis. And she was a slave that had been brought to Egypt by pirates and sold in Egypt. And she had been taken from Greece. And they believe that she became the wife of a pharaoh in like year 2000 BC. And that that, that actually occurred. I'm sure some liberties were taken and ha- um, things have been, that story has probably evolved quite a bit. So though, yeah, I'm still, that piece is still kind of living in me and I want to re-examine that story. 
you know, maybe two years ago, I reexamined it and edited it to be performed. One of my friends was creating a drama program at an elementary school and there was no budget. And she reached out and said, could we do Cinderella's from around the world? And so I hadn't written it for children to perform in it. And so I had to go back and that was a neat exercise of how do I adjust this so that children can perform this text and it still hold up because when it was originally produced, it was all college age students that were performing in it. When you are sitting down to work on a project, you can use the Cinderella story if you would like as an example. Do you have some sort of rubric that you use? Like this play is for this age of children. And so therefore it needs to tick these boxes. These are the supplementary activities that we're going to put around it. Like, is it a formal process or how do you approach these kinds of projects? That's an interesting question. This is a trend in children's theater that I've noticed. And it's a trend in big people theater too. It's a lot of adaptation. And so, you know, like how many Broadway stories, the stories that have made it to a Broadway stage have been adapted, you know, that, that have become a musical. There's, I mean, the, the first one that comes to mind that was not an adaptation is Dear Evan Hansen. I'm sure there are others, but everything is based off a book or a play or, you know, somewhere along the line. So Cinderella, you know, there were, those stories were, had been the seven stories that I explored and put into that play were all adaptations. You know, another play that I have written and and have re-examined since was uh, Peter Rabbit. I, I've worked a lot with the Peter Rabbit stories, and that, and that's very much an adaptation. And in the beginning, I like to try to stay true to the adaptation as much as possible and true to the original story. And I find as I'm doing, you know, as I'm going through drafts, it's less and less of the original story, and it's becoming more and more in my voice, which I think is, you know, I think that's the goal of doing an adaptation. I'm a, you know, you're trying to uphold the original story as much as possible. And, but you're also trying to put your imprint on it because that's why the story is being retold in the first place is, is you have a fresh take. So I think that because all of those stories had existed before, I had some indication of what age the story would be appropriate for. It's hard mm-hmm. with stories like Peter Rabbit because, you know, if you go back to the, the, the words of Beatrix Potter, it's very refined. She wrote, I think, the, the tale of Peter Rabbit, which is the one, the story that we're all familiar with, if we're familiar with um, Beatrix Potter. That story, I think, was written in 1902. So there's a lot of original language that can be lost on children, it, and it does read very British. So that was a consideration. I think about length quite a bit. I think when, when structuring a piece, I would not want to do theater for the very young that exceeded 15 or 20 minutes. And then I also think that, and I was fascinated because that, that production of The Wizard of Oz that I saw in Poland, they did an intermission. From a logistical standpoint, I, I don't want to do a TYA show that has an intermission because <laughs> intermissions get messy. You know, from a logistical standpoint, then all the chaperones are having to wrangle the kids and take them for bathroom breaks and it gets really wild. Or maybe they had to bring a snack and then there's snack in the theater. And you have to recapture their focus. You know, from an overall like storytelling standpoint, doing it in like a solid one hour works best. Middle school and high school can handle an intermission, but you know, I, I don't want to underestimate the attention span of our youth because they, when something's really good, 
they can hang in there. But that's a consideration that I, I make when I'm when I'm writing a piece. If I think it's for young people, I try not to exceed an hour. Do you think about a specific message that you're trying to convey? Or does that become clear as you're writing? I don't think I know what the message is until at least the first draft is fully written. And a lot of the time, the first draft doesn't even get fully written when I'm writing. I'm somebody who has 10 ideas a day. And I end up like, oh, that would be really great. And sometimes I'll even start the Google Doc. And I like get to like a character description that I just don't like, and I throw it in the waste bin. I, I'm sure most writers would agree, or people who write, I Again, I'm not sure I'm a writer, um, uh, and that's awful to say. But uh, you know, labels. I I don't primarily identify as, as a writer, um, but I do. I am somebody who writes. I find that once I read the first full draft, and when I when I finish writing a play, I get up on my feet and I act the whole thing out of my bedroom. I have to speak it out loud. I don't really write in other mediums that much. And so when I, when I write a play, I, I read everything out loud. And oftentimes I'll get up on my feet and act it out. That way I hear if the language is clumsy. And after that first read that I do, then I start to hone in on, on theme. But I don't make a conscious effort to establish a theme. I think when I'm thinking about trying to get it produced, though, I, I do need to start to to hone in on theme because, you know, oftentimes you're going to make a study guide that, that goes with the play. So it can be produced in a school or, or so that it can count as a field trip activity because school administration needs that. We know that theater is educational just for being a theatrical experience and it's still worthwhile, but a school administration needs a study guide to show to parents and to show to higher up administration to make sure that it's ticking off some check boxes in curriculum. So that's when I do start talking about theme because theme is something they talk about in English classes or, or, you know, early language arts classes. The theme of Peter Rabbit, I think the theme of all Beatrix Potter stories just in general are community and take care of your community. So we associate Peter Rabbit with listen to your mama, don't go into the garden, um, mm-hmm. always listen to your parents. And that's true too for that one individual story. But the theme that transcends all of Beatrix Potter's work is very much take care of your community. And I, I discovered that after the first draft. When I realized that she was this brilliant businesswoman, she was so many things, but she wrote books where they were all living in the same universe. They were all living in the same world. And she would pop Peter Rabbit onto a few pages. Sometimes it would just be a very small cameo because she knew that if Peter Rabbit was in that book, she was going to sell sell some books. And so she was very smart in that way. And so characters would continue to be revisited again and again and again. She was like Marvel Cinematic Universe for children's books, where they were all living in the same world and there was overlap. I love that. We need to learn... We need to learn from that example for the theater. Yes, because we haven't figured out how to do that very, really. Right. Trilogies and sequels don't work very well in theater as of right now. I wonder if the issue is the cameo piece, because it's hard to get an actor to come in to just essentially do a flyby every night for a, a, a performance run. But that's something to think about. You know what? The kids might really like that. They might really respond to that. That's very interesting to think about. It is. And I haven't thought about it too much with, well, that's a lie. I mean, I have, I mean, I have thought about it 
to an extent because I've, I've been working on a Peter Rabbit trilogy. It's turned into, originally when I wrote Peter Rabbit, I wrote it so long that it, I mean, it would never be feasible to produce. There was all of this character doubling and like, I was like, oh, I literally adapted like 12 of her books and there were like 80 characters. And I was like, there's no way this could exist in the span of an hour and that many character names that the children would have to remember. I was like, this cannot be done. So then I like separated the the piece into two and it was kind of formulaic. Um, I was like, okay, Beatrix Potter wrote a lot about kitty cats. So we're going to have like Potter's kittens over here. And then she wrote a lot about bunny rabbits. And so we're going to have the bunny rabbits over here. So I pared it down quite a bit. I decided I liked Mr. McGregor more as a bachelor than having a wife. And so I cut the wife, made him grumpier. Then I kept winnowing down, winnowing down the Peter Rabbit story. Now I've adjusted it so that Peter Rabbit does not grow up in the span of a play. Peter Rabbit in Beatrix Potter's books becomes a grown up one day, but nobody thinks of Peter Rabbit as a grown up. And so it's also it's hard to show this like episodic large span of time, uh, time change with no intermission. And so I was like, no, Peter just needs to stay a child. And I haven't done anything with the kitty cat stories yet. Um, I'm, I don't know if I'll ever do a play that's all about her cats or not because the cats, they don't get into mischief quite as much, um, as the rabbits. So they're not quite as fun. Now I'm working on exploring Peter Rabbit in a site-specific way. In college, I mostly focused on touring, touring theater for youth. And so touring into schools and touring into um, theater halls and festivals and alleyways and all of that, wherever they would host a performance, libraries. But now I still want to keep touring very much a part of my life, but um, I've been doing a lot of work with Seed Art Share, and they do theater in a site-specific way. And so tying the, uh, the venue in with the storytelling. And so how can Peter, Peter Rabbit be performed in a site-specific way is really interesting to me. And so that's how I'm exploring the trilogy. And that, comes, that brings new conventions and new writing considerations. There are no blackouts in site-specific theater. So that's something to think about. And, and how long does it take to walk from the tool shed to the, um, to the main house? And the audience is with the host character the whole time. So how much dialogue needs to be scripted? Can the performer do some improv uh, along the way? Or, or is it better that they improvise? All of that's something to think about when, when working on site-specific playwriting. That's super interesting. So I have one question that is kind of a logistical question. You graduated in 2019 and so had a little bit of time in the pre-pandemic world, but very closely thereafter, it was 2020 and everything changed. You've spoken about this a little bit earlier in the conversation, but the way in which we offer theater (laughs) has changed quite a bit. So I'm interested in that, how that piece has changed for you, but also I know, Dylan, that you work with so many companies in this region, and as a freelance performer and teaching artist, I want to know how you are managing running in between all of those gigs. So if you could speak a little bit to like what it's like to do TYA on Zoom, mm-hmm. but also what it's like to be a freelancer in this way. I wish I had done more TYA on Zoom during this time. 
it has been something that I have wanted to explore more and I haven't done as much as I'd like. I've taught quite a bit on Zoom. I haven't performed very much. I've done one class that I think has been super interesting and it's gotten my gears turning. They're grinding in my brain and I'm trying to figure out how to create entertaining experiences. And I can't wait till in-person children's theater can return because there's nothing like it. I I really, I haven't done as much Zoom TYA as I want. And I've got a lot of stuff that I want to try out. The thing that got my gears grinding and, and got me thinking creatively about Zoom was a process drama class that I co-taught with Raleigh Little Theater on Zoom. It is like the definition of, I mean, it is participatory the whole way through, and it requires the teacher to teach in role, which is something I haven't seen a lot of in the Triangle area. And this is something that Meredith Peterson Cooper, the education director at Raleigh Little Theater, and I were talking about. There's not a lot of teaching in role, which requires, like, if I'm teaching a lesson about Peter Rabbit, then I might put on a cap and be Mr. McGregor. And maybe I have like a, a little, you know, like a bucket or, or like some kind of prop. It doesn't require me to go full out in costume. You certainly can, but semblances and pieces are enough because children don't need a lot to be creative. And you are creating a story that never existed and they are participating the whole way through. So they're making suggestions. Um, you're trying to solve an overarching problem with those classes. I think the, the theme that we had was we were trying to save Atlantis. It took a little bit of creativity on Meredith and my uh, part to figure out what the, what Atlantis's problem was. And then we did like Canva graphics and things like that. Like we got a letter from the Atlanteans asking us for help. And then we had to brainstorm like, what would we pack to go to Atlantis? And so then it was like a, a pantomime activity where we're all packing our bags and then we're journeying in this kind of dramatized experience where we're all journeying in our Zoom windows to Atlantis. And I don't think we got to Atlantis until the third class period. We had to come up with ways to help them. And we would use theater games and uh, drama exercises and activities to save Atlantis. Like, And it was so interesting to see how this activity worked on Zoom because it's so not Zoom, but it worked. The activity machine where a child enters and does a repeated gesture and a repeated sound, and they're all like the cogs of a machine. And so they were trying to create a machine that could save Atlantis. And it worked on their Zoom windows better than I anticipated. I thought the sound would get wonky. That worked really well. And it's really easy, especially when there's another grown-up, to turn your camera off or leave your Zoom window, throw on a piece of fabric, and then re-enter with changing the name. And now I think I was the great oracle, the underwater great oracle at one point. And he was loud and he was a fan of the Boston Red Sox. And I played this character and the kids love it. And they don't say, no, that's not the great oracle. That's Mr. Dylan. Um, Nine times out of 10, they won't do that. And I think that anyone with a Zoom account can do that. Anyone with a Zoom account and some creativity and some energy and some time can do that. You don't even have to have a streaming platform. Honestly, I think it might be better not to do it on a streaming platform because the streaming platform creates a disconnect. Whereas if they're all in the same Zoom room, then they all have it's participatory and they all have agency over the story that is being told. I want to do more of that. And I think that that can still exist in post-pandemic times. You were asking about being a freelance 
theater artist, um, working for so many companies, I am just grateful. You know, I'm really grateful to be able to do it. I have a lot of energy and I love the work and I like to do a bunch of different things. It's one of the reasons that I stuck with theater for youth and I didn't do theater education. Theater educators in the public schools are superheroes. They live under those fluorescent lights and they own it and they work crazy hours and they don't get a lot of compensation to create a whole theater program. And they put on these shows and they are oftentimes the designer, the director, the producer, all the things. And they teach kids how to be technicians and actors. I really wanted to be able to I like the change of scenery and I like that one day I'm teaching at Raleigh Little Theater and then the next day I head two miles down Hillsborough Street to teach at Pure Life Theater. That's exciting to me. And every studio is different and they place an emphasis on different things and their offerings are different. So um, one day I might be teaching process drama with, uh, with Meredith at Raleigh Little Theater, but then the next day I might be teaching devising or I might be teaching Zip Zap Zap um, uh, <laughs> at, at Pure Life Theater. And I think that's really cool. I'm just grateful to be working because I know that it's hard right now for freelancers and it's hard It's hard for theater artists in general. And it's also hard for young people that have just started out or are just now starting out. I think I'm a little bit of an anomaly. I can't explain that, but I'm really grateful that I am working. Is there anything that you'd like to talk about that we haven't covered before we wrap up? My dream for the Triangle area is that, and it's what I thought I would be doing in 20 years, is that the Triangle area will have a theater company that it's a professional theater company that would focus solely on performing and presenting professional theater for young audiences that would both tour in all of the rural counties surrounding Wake County that um, don't have as much arts opportunity and don't have all the studios and all of the theater programs and would also provide, you know, we, we do a great job in the Triangle area of providing education experiences. I want to see the Triangle provide more entertainment experiences for, for young audiences. And I think we're heading in that direction, but I want to see, I think it's going to take one theater to say, I am here. And I am going to focus on performing for young audiences because young audiences deserve theater that is engaging, original. I think that we've got, going back to what we um, were talking about earlier, most children's theater is adapted. And it's a lot of the same stories being told again and again. I get so excited when there's an original TYA piece. And so theater that's engaging, original, and professional. And that involves paying artists to do it um, because it's a huge commitment and children deserve the best. So that's, that's my goal. And I thought it was going to take 20 years for me to get there. I don't know if I'm going to start a new company before, um, uh, before the 20 year mark. I feel like I have to be 40 to do that. But I think, I think the triangle is going to get there before 20 years from now, because we're, 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 we're busting out all over, you know, June is busting out all over and we've got a lot of theater happening. And I've seen theaters already exploring performing for young audiences. I've seen that over the past few years. And so I hope that they continue to do that. I hope so too. And I'm excited for your your dream. I, I think we're on the right track. And I think that you're going to be a big player in that. And I am so appreciative of the work that you do and the heart that you put into it. And more specifically, I'm appreciative that you spent some time talking with me today. Thank you so much, Dylan. 
Thank you for having me on, Tamara. This has been so much fun. I'm a faithful listener, and you've interviewed so many of our mutual friends, and it's been cool to chat with you. Awesome. Did you know that Artist Soapbox turns four years old this year? If you've found value, inspiration, education, commiseration, or just a laugh, please become a patron and help us do all the things we hope to do for you. There are links in the show notes about ways to support Artist Soapbox, or you can go directly to patreon.com slash artist soapbox. Thanks so much.